I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to this Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, last month we celebrated Pride at the Fountain Grove Lodge. It was June 12th, the same day we all woke to the news of the tragic mass shooting at the Pulse Bar in Orlando, Florida. I have to say, the day was filled with a lot of very mixed emotions as we talked with residents and guests who had come to celebrate Pride at the Lodge. Tonight we'll share some of what we heard that day. And then on this exclusive on-demand version of our show, you'll meet Arthur Slepian. He's the founder and CEO of A Wider Bridge, an organization dedicated to building community with LGBT people and Israel. And of course, coming up next week, the 2016 Summer Olympic Games begin in Brazil. And this year, we hope to see more out-LGBT athletes than ever before. Charlie Walters is an Olympic enthusiast who's covered the last eight Olympic Games for a variety of news and entertainment channels. He's packing his bags right now for Brazil, but he's going to stop in tonight to talk with us and give us his insight about the upcoming games and about which LGBT athletes to watch for. We'll have all of this and much more coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 31st, 2016. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. The U.S. Navy is set to name a ship after gay rights icon and San Francisco politician Harvey Milk. Secretary of the Navy Ray Mabus indicated he intends to name a planned military sea lift command fleet oiler, the USNS Harvey Milk, TAO-206. Milk came from a Navy family, and he commissioned in the service in 1951. He served as a diving officer in San Diego during the Korean War and on the submarine rescue ship Kitawaki in 1955. Milk was honorably discharged from the service as a lieutenant junior grade. Over the last several years, there's been a push from California politicians to have a ship named after Milk since the 2011 repeal of the Department of Defense's Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And from L.A., a health advisory from the Department of Public Health urgently recommends meningitis vaccinations for all gay and bisexual men in Southern California and all other men who have sex with men. Invasive meningitis is a rare but serious disease that can lead to swelling of the brain, the spinal cord, loss of a limb, deafness, brain damage, or even death. There's been an increase above the typical number of reported cases for this time of year across Southern California. In L.A. County alone, 13 cases have been reported, seven of which involved gay men. Fortunately, no one has died from the disease. The Centers for Disease Control said that it's working with the California Department of Public Health to assist local health departments with the investigation and management of the outbreak. In addition to being vaccinated, the Department of Health recommends not sharing drinks, utensils, food, or toothbrushes, not having multiple kissing partners, and not sharing things you smoke like cigarettes, e-cigarettes, cigars, pipes, or hookahs. The disease can be spread to others through respiratory secretions of people who carry the bacteria without symptoms in their nose and throat. Meningitis can start with flu-like symptoms and progress to high fever, headache, stiff neck, confusion, and rash. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, August 1st at 2 p.m., the Sonoma General LGBT Support Group will meet at the Sonoma Community Center, 276 East Street in Sonoma. And on Tuesday, August 2nd at 6 p.m., the Transgender North Bay Male to Female Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. 
And on Thursday, August 4th at 12 noon, the men's brown bag lunch and the discussion will take place at the Spectrum Center in San Rafael. And also on Thursday at 7.30 p.m., PFLAG's North Bay Group will meet at the Westminster Presbyterian Church, 240 Tiburon Boulevard in Mill Valley. And don't forget, registration is now open for the LGBT Studies Program at Napa Valley College. Classes meet on Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. starting on August 15th. You can learn more at napavalley.edu. And for more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for more of the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutbeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. And welcome back to the 2016 LGBT Pride Celebration here at the Fountain Grove Lodge. Party's underway. We're outside poolside. Tony and I just got done sampling the food from the buffet. It's pretty incredible. And if you've never had a chance to dine up here, uh, you're missing out. Really, really good food. But I'm here with Frankie DeLuna. He's a member of the staff here involved in coordinating activities, and he's a concierge. Frank, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. And happy Pride to you. Uh, talk about this day and uh, why it's important to everybody here at Fountain Grove Lodge. Well, this is our third annual Pride uh, party, and it's a way for our residents to, to enjoy being part of the gay community and having friends and family be a part of it. Uh, we have wonderful benefactors in face-to-face Sonoma County AIDS Foundation along with LGBT Connection, LGBTQ Connection, who serve gay youth. Uh, we're here to sell raffle tickets to benefit their causes. And we're here to have great food, wine, beer, desserts, and enjoying this glorious weather that Santa Rosa is providing today. Oh, you're not kidding. And you mentioned that there are people outside of the village that are here. You've opened this up to the community too, right? We did. We sent out probably several thousand uh, invites uh, for this event. Every Invite was distributed. In fact, there weren't any extras for the staff to have. Um, but we have a great turnout today, and there's more to come. There's going to be dancing. It's happening right now in the living room in the pool area, which we are here. Um, we have plenty of people enjoying the, the beverages and the savory food that our executive chef, Mark Caldwell, has prepared for all of you. So uh, we're here to uh, celebrate pride and just enjoy the beautiful day and make sure our benefactors are able to reap the rewards of the contributions collected today. Fantastic. Well, keep up the good work here and uh, keep the wine flowing. We will. It's going to go nonstop till five. Thank you. Outstanding. All right. Spirits are pretty high, despite waking up this morning to some pretty sad news. Uh, this event took place on that morning that I think all of us will remember when we woke to news of the shooting that took place at the Pulse Dance Club, the gay club in Orlando, Florida. The worst shooting in U.S. history, uh, and something that really reminds us about why it's important to be proud. But I'm here with two friends of mine uh, who are who have joined the party here. Uh, Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Greg. So, talk about this event, and then this morning, uh, how does it all fit for you? Well, uh, this is the first time here at the Fountain Grove Lodge for Gay Pride, and uh, it is it's wonderful. There's lots of uh, happy people here and uh, some great uh, food and, and drink. And uh, But in the, in the background, of my, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Orlando and uh, what went on there. 
Um, you know, I just can't help thinking that we, we have to, have to, have to do something about gun control. Um, I was reading that the, uh, the person who did all the shooting actually bought the gun legally and was a person of interest with the FBI. So that just just makes me mad. Yeah, no doubt. And, and then it was like an hour or so later after the coverage of, of that story, uh, we got the news from L.A. that Santa Monica police stopped a, a guy on his way to L.A. Pride with a car full of weapons and explosives. That was either sheer luck, <laughs> I guess, um, that they they caught him before anything could happen. But, yeah, that's uh, pretty amazing. Um, and thank God that they did catch him. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, you know, some folks have said, well, maybe Pride celebrations are too dangerous. There was that group that was trying to get an injunction against San Francisco Pride to stop the celebration because of the shootings there. I don't know. Have we outlived our our need for Pride and Pride celebrations? No, I think this just points out the fact that we need to keep on doing it, that we need more more Pride, more more out being out, more dancing in the streets, more 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 being queer. Um, we have we have to. I agree with you. Uh, Tony and I talked about it, and I said, you know what? I'm going to wear even more rainbows than I was before when we go to Pride this year. I think it's more important than ever that we be out, we be visible, and that we don't let those who don't want us to be there succeed. Exactly. I, I agree. All right. Well, let's get back to the party. Enjoy the day and enjoy the food. Cheers. Well, I'm here now with Robert May, who is the relatively new executive director of Fountain Grove Lodge. That is correct. This is my uh, my fourth month. Well, congratulations. Tell us a little about your background, where you came from, and what brought you to Fountain Grove Lodge. Well, I grew up in this in- industry. My mother was a nurse in Canada 50 years ago and started assisted living. And I, as a young boy, grew up in the service of helping elders. And uh, I've been involved with elder care for many years uh, since then. But, uh, you know, Branched off into other careers as a composer of, of uh, contemporary classical music, involved in technology companies, and 15 years ago I said, uh, oh, I used to do this job a long time ago as a kid, maybe I could do it again. And then uh, I decided to open up a residential care facility for the elderly in, in San Diego, which I did. And I got interested in working for larger companies. I worked for Sunrise Senior Living, which was at the time was the largest provider of elder health care. Then went to Brookdale, which now is the largest provider of elder health care. And this great opportunity came before me to come to Santa Rosa. And as somebody mentioned, this new community called Fountain Grove Lodge, LGBT community. Um, and I said, wow, it's in wine country? And they said, yes. And one of my favorite wineries is close by. And I said, I love the whole no- uh, mission of LGBT. And great wine, great food. So here I am. What a combination, because you can certainly find all of that right here. So talk about why this community is so special. Well, this community is special. It's as a result of um, truly unique individuals. Any place is the sum of its parts, or not more. Individuals who live here, both LGBT and non. We have um, a group of individuals, we have a large family, who have a lot of respect, care, love for each other, and it is genuine, it is deep, it resonates, and I'm very proud of that fact, primarily with what, you know, the media and what we have uh, been witness to in the last 24 hours, that 
we have both LGBT and non-LGBT living in a community uh, with grace, wonderful civility, profound love and respect. And I'm very honored to be its executive director. Well said. Well Thank said. You. Beautifully said. So give us kind of a sense for those people who are not aware of sort of the size of the community. And, and you mentioned that, that it's not just exclusively LGBT. Uh, talk about the demographics as well. Well, we have a, it's a beautiful arts and crafts movement initiative, which was started by Bill and Cindy Gallagher, who were also residents of Santa Rosa, who believed in this mission 10 years ago. And, you know, it's their forward thinking, their initiative, hard work, stick to itness that made this happen. It took eight to ten years to get from planning to fruition. So, you know, there's been a lot of commitment to the mission here. Um, you know, we have a balance. I mean, it's a very large community in terms of size, but feels very intimate if you're an individual who resides here. So there's a lot of space for each person, so it's not crowded in any way. It's more like an oasis as opposed to a retirement community. It's like a resort. It's like a Four Seasons resort here. And that's the way I kind of refer to it. I don't really see it as a retirement community, but the fact is, you know, that's what it is. That's what its roots are. But because we're here to help the LGBT community, you know, age in place and provide those services. Because it's a different requirement, there's a different story. There might not be immediate family to provide supportive health care services. There might not be the daughter or granddaughter to help. It's, you know, there may be no family there. And so that's a very different mission within, you know, elder care. Not something that I think is readily understood and, you know, I think that we understand it better now as well. And I've been here for a short period of time. But that, you know, we have a great commitment to provide that type of care and support as everybody ages in place. Also, non-LGBT might not have family members, which we have a number of individuals who reside here, you know, with that particular status. So, um, you know, we're honored and, and uh, we have to, you know, we look forward to providing care and services for all of our residents. So talk about the future a little bit. Uh, you have a beautiful facility. It's well-developed. It seems like everything's in place. What's your vision for where you would like to take this community? Well, for me, it's about culture. It's about understanding. Um, you know, we have a remarkable nucleus, but we're two years young. So, you know, there's a great mission, a great story to be told across the country. And that mission and that story is something that we're very proud to unfold and to commit to the rest of the marketplace, the rest of the retirement marketplace, the LGBT community as a whole. There's a vast segment of the LGBT community that doesn't even know about us yet. But they are. They're slowly getting to know about us. They're slowly getting to know how unique we are how absolutely fabulous we are in so many ways. And that takes time. You know, no new business gets, you know, has, has that direct impact and success. It takes years to get that type of market penetration, to get that market understanding. And so I think that's one of our goals moving forward, is really spreading word. We have a wait list of over 35 um, individuals who are, you know, waiting for a place here. And so we know there's a great interest. We know that what we're doing 
is what the marketplace wants. And, you know, we look forward to continuing to, you know, show up in all of those different initiatives that we have. Personally, I want to have a strong cultural artistic center here, host events, bring in musicians and artists from around the community, come perform for our residents here and other residents that belong to the Oakmont family, Verena up on the hill, and, um, you know, to integrate our community within the larger scope of Oakmont as well. Fantastic. So last question for you. It's, we're celebrating 2016 Pride. As you think about that today, um, in light of, of what's happened in this world, why is it still important to celebrate Pride? Celebrating Pride for me allows me to reflect upon many different issues that maybe we don't always have the opportunity to think about or to, or to concern ourselves with. Like sometimes we forget. I'm not gay, but I have a number of very close friends who are, and you know, I, I sort of renewed commitment to the vision of support, of understanding, of creating an open culture, of creating understanding, respect. You know, there's a word called empathy. It's not a word that we really understand. It's a new word in English vocabulary, actually. It comes from the German word Einfühlen, which means to feel in or feel within. And that's not a word that is part of our culture yet. I know we use it, but it's still a relatively new term, because it was kind of the turn of the century. But it's not an old word, it's a new word. I think we're still trying to understand what that means as we move forward. And so my goal is to you know, share that with all of my associates, my residents, and for them to be proud and to, you know, go forth and share goodness and understanding and goodwill wherever they go and where we go is the mission of uh, Fountain Grove Lodge. Fantastic. Robert May, Executive Director of the Fountain Grove Lodge, thanks for hosting this event and for including us today. You're very welcome. So as you heard Frankie talking about earlier, one of the great things about this event this afternoon is that there are two benefactors, two local nonprofit organizations to do incredible work here in Sonoma County and Napa County who are benefiting from a raffle today. So let's start with Face to Face. Linnea Kennedy is here uh, representing Face to Face and she's fairly new to the organization. So how's it going so far? It's great. I love working at Face to Face. I've never been so happy at a job. It's a wonderful agency. Perfect. Did you hear that, Rick? You got a happy employee. Fantastic. So talk about what you're hoping to do here today at the 2016 Pride Celebration. Well, uh, a lot of the folks here are already pretty aware of us and have been in the community for a long time in Santa Rosa area and know about us, but um, just getting our information out to other folks who might not know and um, reminding people that you know we're still here and of the work we're doing. Fantastic. And you've got a need for funding, right? Most of your funding comes from donations, and so we're hoping people in the community here that are at this event will also buy raffle tickets and donate. Talk about some of the projects that Face to Face is working on that need funding. Sure. Um, well, all of our um, ongoing services, you know, making sure that we can continue to do um, the rapid HIV testing and um, keep our services functioning in that regard. Um, we also provide um, 
referrals to folks and um, help them, you know, secure housing, navigate benefits, that kind of thing. Just keeping the keeping the wheels moving and, you know. And all of the great community education that Megan Murphy does and the needle exchange program, there's so much. But interest from the feds has kind of dwindled a little bit. So really, it's it's all about local donations and funding, right? Oh, so true. Yes. Good points. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, enjoy the afternoon. Thank you. So sitting right next to Face to Face is the LGBTQ Connection. I'm here with the director, Ian Stanley. How's it going, Ian? It's going great. It's uh, really great to be here as part of this event here at Fountain Grove and to be a beneficiary of their events this year. And I brought a few folks with me. Naomi uh, is one of our leaders on our youth leadership team that helped us bring our youth leadership and youth movement building here to Santa Rosa. And then also uh, another young person, too, who's been really helpful with us in, in our programming. Hey, let's, let's say congratulations to you for getting that huge state grant. Yeah, the grant is uh, really, really exciting and really welcome news. It will take the model that we have found great success with in Napa and in Santa Rosa and help us to expand it to Sonoma Valley, Calistoga, and even uh, in Solano County to Fairfield. That's incredible. You were one of only four... LGBT youth organizations to get that type of grant, right? We were one of only four LGBT organizations, period, to get the grant uh, in this cycle. So it's phase two of the California Reducing Disparities Project. Uh, and then they're about to release a few more names of smaller organizations who will also be joining the cohort. Wow, congratulations, Ian. That's so terrific. Last weekend, we were out at uh, the Russian River at Guerneville Pride. We interviewed Javier, the new director at uh, Positive Images, and we asked him, do you see some partnership possibilities with Voices and with the LGBTQ connection? And he said yes. So we're kind of excited about that possibility. Yeah, I think that it just makes sense for, you know, in the communities. I mean, that's why Connection isn't our name. It's about being connected to other people, doing things together, and creating a movement that's not exclusive, but making the community more broader, more connected, more happy and healthy. Outstanding. Well, I think it's perfect here that we have a youth organization present and working in a premier LGBT retirement community, uh, celebrating Pride together. Yeah, we, uh, we've actually had a lot of fun doing intergenerational work uh, of all kinds, including with senior citizens in Napa. And uh, I think our youth leadership team in Santa Rosa has already talked about doing some of that work here as well. So Fountain Grove, Fountain Grove is a great place to be to uh, get connected to that, that part of our community also. Outstanding. Well, keep up the good work and have an awesome afternoon. Thanks, Greg. You too. <laughs> so I'm here with Lisa Lamelli and Gary Saperstein, who you know from being on our show before and for running out in the vineyard. Happy Pride to both of you. Happy Pride. We love Happy it. Pride. Bittersweet today, but thank you. It, it is. Yes, it, it is really, really difficult to wake up to that news this morning. Talk about for you uh, the impact of that in this Pride celebration. Well, you know, it's just about, it's a reminder that it can happen anywhere. And that you no, know, and we, we don't know all the details of, of what happened and why yet. We don't know that, but we know that there was definitely this some hate involved and terrorism. It seems to be like, um, but it's that it's that constant reminder for being a gay man or woman or L, I should say LGBTQ, right? Um, it's that constant reminder that no matter where we go, we still always have to look over our shoulder, and that's that's so sad in this day and age that we still have to think that way and act that way. That's for sure. And, you know, some people might consider retreating and going into a more protective hiding place. You know, what do you think about that? For me, my response to any kind of hate is always to respond with love. 
And I just think that, um, I mean, last year, I think it's so profound that last year at this time, during our pride, we were celebrating gay marriage being legalized. And then this. And so we just keep loving. We keep dancing and we keep loving. That's what we do. We don't turn away. We don't hide. We don't do any of that. Doesn't it feel like this is even more of a motivation, even more of a reason to be out waving that rainbow flag Absolutely. and to demand yeah. that inclusion? Yes. Yeah, we can't, you, you, we can't stop. Yep. We can't stop. We have to stand yep. in solidarity as a community and with our allies to, to know that we're, we're here. We're, we're here. Not we're, not go, we're not going anywhere. We're a part of this community. We're a part of this nation. We belong here. And, you know, that it's, so we, we can't retreat. You can never retreat. The more if you retreat, then we're, we're giving up and we're giving in to the hatred and that that we will that will never do as a community we will never do that that. awesome awesome well enjoy the afternoon to uh, you both and thanks for being on the show thanks nice meeting you thank you so here are two gentlemen dressed to the nines in some tuxedos today tell us your names and what today is all about for you uh john kennedy and bill baird and you two are married yeah correct all right so how long have you been at Fountain Grove Lodge, first of all? Two and a half years. We moved in on December 18th of 2013. And, Bill, what's it been like for you? Oh, we absolutely love it. Uh, it's a great community. We love the facility. We love our apartment. Um, it's just, we've here. been very, very pleased with being in Santa Rosa and um, loving Fountain Grove Lodge. Now, you two moved up here from San Francisco. Right. What drew you to this particular place as your next as your next uh, location to live well we had been on a mailing list for a long time and we kept coming up in fact I've got about 2,500 pictures of this place under development and uh, we liked everything about this place we've been coming up to the wine country for a long time we love both Sonoma and Mendocino um, so we we're you know, loosely familiar with it um, and it was just seemed to be a, a good transition of uh, leaving San Francisco um, and being able to relax and retire up here. Yeah. Awesome. So let's shift gears for a second. Uh, think back to that first Pride celebration. Why is celebrating Pride today, still in 2016, so important for the two of you? I think it's just a statement. I think being here is uh, just a recognition of who we are. And that's, that's it for me. Well, and being in community. I think that is so important. Uh, we used to do Pride in San Francisco and, and still go down occasionally, but coming together as community, especially when it's people you're living with and socializing with every day, being able to celebrate Pride is really a very unique and, and, and very moving experience. Excellent. Well, enjoy the day and happy Pride to you both. Peace to you. Good to see you. Hi, so tell us your name and what brings you out to Fountain Grove Lodge today? I'm Oren Slausberg. I'm here. My mother-in-law actually lives here at Fountain Grove Lodge, and I have some very good friends that live here as well. Nice. So you can come visit family and friends at the same time. That's right. It's a perfect match. I also happen to be the co-chair of the LGBT Giving Circle of the Sonoma County Foundation, and many of our members live here at Fountain Grove. Awesome. And you guys have done just some great work already as a relatively new organization in this county. Uh, the, the funding of that seniors project that we've been talking about here on Outbeat Radio is really awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you actually see that LGBT Connections, which is one of the youth programs that we funded, is also here tonight. And I think they're one of the beneficiaries of the fundraiser tonight. 
They are. In fact, uh, Frankie was just talking a little bit earlier about the fact that they've already raised almost $1,000 for both the LGBTQ connection and face-to-face. That's wonderful. More philanthropy from the LGBT community would be wonderful in Sonoma County. In some way, pride is the moment when we all get to share all the different aspects of the community. We have seniors, we have elders, we have low-income people. We have people who are coming out about their gender and about their sexuality. And bringing our resources together and bringing our community together is really what makes a difference. And in some ways, June, especially now considering what happened in Orlando, we see the the importance of having places like Fountain Grove, which really is unique in Sonoma County. We really don't have that many places where the LGBTQ community comes together. So a place like this may have started as a retirement place, but has turned into a center of its own. And this is where people will come to celebrate their pride and also to recognize events like happened in Orlando yesterday. Well, very well said. And I think you're right about this facility. Uh, In talking with the executive director, I think that's part of his vision, is this this really does become a place where people can come and gather. There are many people here today that don't live here, but Fountain Grove Lodge has opened its doors, and, and young people and older people are celebrating together. Let me ask you a question. As you think about 2016, you mentioned Orlando and what we heard this morning, but, you know, people tell me that sometimes they get burned out on pride. Why is it still important to celebrate? Well, you know, we don't all have to go to Pride, and we don't all have to wear the rainbow, and we don't have to march in the streets all the time. But it's important to remember that until all people are equal, no one is equal. Until we all have civil rights, nobody has civil rights. So Pride, why maybe the crowds in San Francisco are a little overwhelming, or the commodification of the rainbow flag might be a little too much, It is something that we need to continue to fight with until all people have civil rights, people of color, people of different genders, people of different sexualities, until we have all equal rights, then maybe we can be tired of pride. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. No, you're right. We have a lot more work to do. Oren, thank you so much and happy pride to you. Thank you very much. Happy pride. So I'm here with Stacey Musso, who is the new activities coordinator for Fountain Grove Lodge. Hi. And this is your first big Pride event here at the Lodge. How did it go today? You know, for uh, my first two months, I think it went pretty well. It was a little overwhelming to get this job and then have to plan this event, but I think it went pretty well. So what do you think so far of working here at the Lodge and of the residents? The residents are absolutely amazing. I already feel like I'm part of the family, and it's a family vibe here. It just feels like a family. So. so is this your first experience with an LGBT Pride celebration? Very first, yes. And, and so how is it important to you? It's very important to me because I have family members um, that are LGBT, and I just feel good to be a part of this. So to those people who maybe would say, I'm kind of tired, I'm burned out on celebrating Pride, for you, as someone who's new to this community and new to the Pride celebration, why do you think in 2016 it's still important? Oh, because I think we still have a long way to go and um, we can't stop celebrating it. It's just something we have to continue doing until we're all unified. Outstanding. Well, congratulations on a great event, Stacy, and thanks for having us along. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. So DJ Dave Brown provided the music for the 2016 Pride Celebration here. Uh, Dave, tell us about the day for you. Well, it was a, it was a great day. I also did the Sebastopol Senior Center Gay Dance last night. So I've never done two back-to-back dances before. So I'm pretty exhausted, but it was, it was a great day. 
today. So let's talk about Sebastopol Pride for just a second. Sure. Uh, tell us about that event. Is this the first time that there was a dance um, like that in Sebastopol? We, we usually they usually do about two gay lesbian dances uh, a year at Sebastopol Senior Center. Probably I've been doing those for about six years. Those dances, and it's 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 kind of. Uh, we tend to play more 60s, 70s, 80s, some of the older music. And, uh, and we had about 75 people show up last night. So it was, that was really great. Fun. So talk about today. Uh, you had some people dancing out there. What were the, talk about some of the music people were requesting or hoping to hear. Uh, they were requesting Rick James, uh, requesting YMCA, uh, requesting, um, uh, 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 two-step music, which I had a little bit of. That's that's probably my uh, the music that I know the least about. But I did happen to bring some, um, and uh, just kind of the standards, Gloria, uh, it's raining men, songs like that, and and Beatles. They wanted Beatles too. Awesome. So talk about the meaning of Pride for you. Why is Pride in 2016 still something important to celebrate? Well. I think, uh, well, when I was younger, you know, there were so many, um, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, you know, just bad words used about gays and being in high school and college, hearing that and not being afraid to, to, uh, to speak up about it. And so I think having a pride celebration is kind of, the flip side of that, it's like we, you know, we spent so many years being ashamed, maybe like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and now we can flip it around and be be proud of who we are. Outstanding. Thanks, yeah. Dave. Thanks for, for spinning today, and happy Pride to you. Thank you very much. We had a really great day at the Fountain Grove Lodge celebrating Pride, and though it was bittersweet with some of the news from Orlando we heard, adversity is nothing new to the residents here, many of whom who witnessed the Stonewall riots 47 years ago. And what I found most inspiring was their optimism and enthusiasm for what the future holds. I won't just survive Oh, you will see me thrive can write my story I'm beyond the archetype I won't just conform No matter how you shake my core Cause my roots, they run deep Oh, oh yes, so little
You're listening to an Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News in Depth on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Morelia. That was Katy Perry with Rise, one of the many theme songs you'll hear during the 2016 Summer Olympic Games starting on August 5th in Brazil. And this year, you can expect to see over 30 out LGBT athletes from around the world competing for gold. Charlie Walters has been covering the Olympics for the last eight games, and he's headed to Rio this year to do it all again. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So with the Olympics just about a week away, it's a very exciting time. Uh, But before we talk about that and some of the athletes that will be competing, talk about your experience for our listeners who don't know you. You've been covering the Olympics now for quite a while, right? Yeah, correct. I have been loving the Olympics for almost as long as I can remember. Um, I grew up in a very sports-loving family, the son of a former Major League Baseball player. My dad used to play for the Minnesota Twins, so I was always encouraged at a young age to love and pay attention to sports and um when i was six years old i remember being glued to the tv for the la olympics in 1984 and i decided at that point that i just wanted to follow them the rest of my life so i uh was glued to the tv again in 88 and 92 96 and then finally in 2000 i had the opportunity to study abroad in college at the university of sydney um timed it purposely so that i could be there for the olympics and that's when i actually had the chance to volunteer for them so that was the first one i attended since then i've been to seven olympics rio will be my eighth in a wide variety of contexts and i've acted as a journalist for the past four um since beijing with my friend tyler who's actually i'm actually at his apartment right now because he was at the event with me so we started making our own blog called olympicsorbus.com and that got quite a bit of attention and then in vancouver we covered for uh, Advocate Magazine and Logo TV, and the past two Olympics in London and Sochi, I've had the great opportunity to cover for um, Entertainment Tonight and The Insider. So it's kind of led one thing to another. This year, I'll actually be covering for some NBC outlets, which is great because they're, of course, the rights-holding organization for the Olympics. Right. Really, really exciting. So with all of that coverage, what have you found to be the real allure for you to those games? What's What's the most exciting part about it for you? Yeah, the allure for me is having been to so many different world spectacle events, I guess I would say. To me, the Olympics is really, and I know this sounds utopic, but I think it's like um, the closest we come to to world peace, and especially in a complex and complicated world that we currently live in, I'm, I'm more excited about getting back to that than ever. I just think it's so um, amazing to see people of all different types and all different cultures, and despite whatever's going on in the rest of the world, it's kind of this amazing little little bubble that's created for 16 days and I um I'm just I'm absolutely obsessed with it I just that feeling that energy athletes working with them being inspired by them I think they're some of the greatest people in the world and um it all adds up to me to just creating this incredible thing that I wish happened even more often although one thing that's special about it is that it doesn't happen that often right right yeah well, and and for LGBT folks, the professional sports world has changed a lot just in in the recent years. We've seen a number yep. of professional athletes come out, and and no it doubt. seems it seems like in this country the culture is changing ever so slowly. But yep. but talk about the culture in the Olympics in the Olympic arena for LGBT athletes. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, this is a um, you know I think we're on the right track, but we're on a very slow moving train, and I think. Um, it's kind of, in some respects, you know, we've made so many advances in recent years for for equality for this community in general, and I think sports has kind of remained as one of the the greatest closets still out there um, for whatever reason. I think that as far as professional versus Olympic, as you're asking, yes, we've we've seen, you know, at least 
one major professional athlete come out in almost all of the big sporting disciplines in the past few years, even a lot of them since the last Olympics. Olympics, it's a little bit different. I do think that because it's a major, huge worldwide organization that governs this um, phenomenon, you know, I think there is some catching up to do and to some degree, some patience to be had, um, because I think as people learn about this stuff, especially when we, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about transgender issues and things like this that we might not be as educated about. I think there is a learning curve there. Um, and I think it spreads internationally. Obviously we've seen with equality and gay marriage, there are some countries that have been embracing it even a lot longer than we have. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I wish it would happen even faster, but I'm glad to see the direction that we're headed because if you look at the statistics and numbers of out LGBT athletes going into this games versus the last few, we're obviously, uh, increasing and that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Yep. So, so how would you characterize the homophobia though in the Olympics as, as a culture? You know, I, I I've seen some articles about, you know, struggles that the uh, Olympic Committee has had with different countries and a lot of pressure on some of those countries to exclude uh, the Olympics for those countries that aren't accepting of LGBT people. But is your sense right. that the, the, the Olympic community itself is in front or behind where professional sports is here in the U.S.? Well, I think Sochi was a big uh, rude awakening for us all, wasn't it? So I think that the IOC learned a lot of lessons for that, and as much as I think a lot of people scolded them for for choosing that, and, and I, I was one of those people, I think it started a really important conversation of this issue that we need to look at. Um, and so I think since then, they really have looked at their policies a little deeper, both in terms of um, LGBT acceptance and non-discrimination, and also on the transgender ruling. These are all things that have happened since Sochi. I think um, it gave us an opportunity as a community to have a voice about sports equality and to, um, you know, reach out to both the sponsors and, um, you know, the, the the governing board of the IOC and the USOC to let them know that this is something they need to pay more attention to. So I think it's working. Um, obviously, it wasn't something they were paying attention to when they chose Sochi. And we could say maybe not even when they chose Rio, but I think as of the games that they've, they're choosing since then, I do think that there's going to be a difference. And I think we have a big... Um, a lot of things that have happened. We have a new president, Tomas Bach. This is going to be the first Olympics under his regime. And we also have um, a lot of a lot more out athletes. And one of my goals is to be able to tell those stories because I think the more that they hear about those people, and regardless of how well they do, um, I think the more that they're going to recognize that this, this needs to change whether people like it or not. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see the direction it's headed. And, um, you know, with our bid for L.A., that's a great thing. I actually helped L.A. 2024 to start to have a presence in the LA Pride Parade just about a month ago. And that was a big deal for me because we got to bring all these great athletes, LGBT or allies to just show how much they care about and support this community and want them to be a big part of the bid. So that was something I had never seen before. Um, and that's certainly another step in the right direction. How cool. So let's talk about Rio and the environment there. Uh, you know, there's been some stories in the news. Brazil has not necessarily been the most friendly place for LGBT folks. Uh, right. Well, know, how yeah, are you? Fe- how are you feeling as you think about going there? Yeah. So I, you know, this changes for me every day. I have to tell you, I, in some respects, I look back at Sochi and I look at when people told me, you know, I'm so afraid for you. I can't believe you're going. I'm scared. And then I went there and had one of the best Olympics I've ever had. Partly because because of people being scared and dropping out, I, w- I was given a great opportunity to do a lot more and to have more access um, than I had in the past. Um, 
That being said, for Rio, there, you know, we have a whole wide gamut of issues. I think um, originally, if you had asked me a year ago if, if the LGBT thing wasn't uh, something I was afraid of, I would have said absolutely not. I've visited Rio many times, including just this past New Year's, and I've always felt very comfortable there um, as a gay person. And I've, I've never really experienced that type of discrimination on the ground. The stuff that I'm reading about recently and the stuff that's going around, I think, all over the world obviously has me thinking slightly a little bit different. So, um, but layer on top of that, the health concerns and certainly the security stuff going on. Yeah, I would say I'm a little more nervous um, about these games than, than usual. Will it keep me from going? No. Um, I'm very excited about the opportunities it opens up, and I think it's still so important for, for many of us to be there um, to tell the positive stories. So in some ways I'm more excited, and in some ways I'm a little nervous, but I'm, I'm going no matter what. Good, good. Well, and, and let's hope that the athletes do as well. So talk about what life will be like for them. Will there be a, a visible LGBT community or will it be kind of like a cruise ship with that, you know, secret <laughs> friends of Dorothy sort of meeting place? <laughs> yeah, I have been on, on a cruise ship before. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so in the past, um, it has not been that case. Uh, I, I guess ever since really going back to my first Olympics in Sydney, that was a very gay-friendly city and they really embraced the games. There wasn't kind of an official gay celebration area at that point, but the bars, um, including one which I worked at at night, I worked basically for the Olympics during the day and moonlighted bartending at night, um, really embraced the games and had like Olympics themes, drag shows and all these types of things. And it was, it was really, really cool. Um, and then since then, yeah, I guess like Athens, the gay scene was actually pretty big, probably more than people realized. Um, Vancouver was the first Olympics that we saw an official celebration zone and that was called the pride house and tyler and i were actually quite involved with that we helped them to get some media coverage we were there for the rainbow ribbon cutting ceremony in whistler that was quite a moment for both of us um and just helping to tell that london it was too bad we were kind of involved with the pride house people and they just didn't receive the funding that they needed so there was not a pride house in that location sochi there wasn't for obvious reasons um and now coming into rio yes there will be an official zone called the pride house that has two different areas there's going to be one that's kind of like a beachside pavilion and then one that um i think has taken over kind of one an established gay bar there for nighttime celebration and it's great because as far as i understand from working with that um committee a little bit that i have that they uh have received the full support of the official rio organizing committee to um proceed with all of their activities so right. um i hope that despite this recent news that that still will be a very safe place for people to celebrate. And I hope that athletes will come there as well. I think one thing we experienced in Vancouver, we were hoping that more athletes, because there were a, a small handful of LGBT athletes then, but they really didn't visit the Pride House. It was more kind of allies and, and spectators that were there. But I think that's going to change a little bit in Rio. And I hope to be a small part of that as I want to conduct some of my interviews with them in that space. Right. <coughs> well, and since we're talking about that and, and the decision that people will make about whether to be visible or not, you know, I'm curious, what do you think the influence of the Orlando incident here will have? Do you think athletes will be more willing and more motivated to be out and to sort of stand in, in strength for events like Orlando? Well, it's a great question, and I certainly hope so. I think that this is a time that the community as a whole needs to um, be prouder than ever, and it's something that I personally experienced, as I think many of us did, um, the days after that tragedy, I went to a candlelight vigil in my own neighborhood of West Hollywood, and in some respects, I felt 
more close to that community than I ever have before. And it actually inspired me and a group of my friends to start a campaign, which we are taking to the Olympics, called Rest in Pride, um, which is a way for social media um, users to get involved, to share their most prideful LGBT moments um, in lieu of, of, of recent events. And then we came up with a way for them to actually symbolize um, solidarity and the desire to fight back by putting kind of this rainbow war paint on their face. So we have been invited by the Pride House to replicate that experience in Rio, and it's something that I hope people will do um, in the wake of Orlando now that we're you know a little over a month away. Um, I don't know. Will it make people more scared? I, I, I can't really answer that question. Um, for me, I hope it will inspire them to be even more visible, especially in this community. But I, you know, I do understand that there is there is a hesitance just in terms of safety there. So it's um it's it's interesting and complicated and tough times in some respect that we're living to. But I always look at those things as an opportunity for change. Sure, it's really cool. I think it would be great to have people, you know, who are watching the Olympics and getting involved in it to have parties and paint their faces and, and, and bring it home. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the gay and lesbian athletes uh, who are going to be competing this year. The advocate just did a great article with some pictures of a lot of men and women, a surprising (laughs) number to me, uh, people that I heard about people that I haven't heard about. So talk about some of the athletes you're expecting to see there that you're excited about and tell us who we should keep our eye on. Yeah, I love the advocate story. Also, Sid Ziegler, who's a wonderful um, journalist in this space for who runs out sports, had put out a list a couple days ago that I noticed is already increasing in numbers. I think he started with 28 athletes, and as of today, they're up to about 33 as people um, come forth when they see these stories. But it's a really exciting list. I love the diversity on the list. I mean, I think we've got you know people from all parts of the world. Um, it is female-dominated, which is something to be expected if we look at the pattern in the past of the 33 that I've seen, I think. Only 10 of them are males, and none of those males are American, but we do have a lot of um, American women, so that's really exciting. Um, I love the list. I just think it's great. I love learning about these people. I think about half of them are returning Olympians, and half of them are, are brand-new Olympians. So um, I've been reading about each of them as, I, as I've had time as I go, and I just love hearing their stories. They've all, for the most part, I think, been really outspoken about this, and there's even like a couple, two of the women in there are married. Um, you know, I... I I'm super excited to hopefully get to meet as many of them as I possibly can. Um, there's also some some things that I think we need to be more educated on. Castor Semenya is a great example, uh, track and field star from South Africa who is, um, you know, being called intersex, which is a different thing than transgender. And uh, she is being included on these lists. Um, but I think we need to be educated there just as the IOC is having to relearn about intersex versus transgender and how they treat these type of athletes. I think she's going to be a really interesting story, especially since she has probably one of the best chances to win gold um, in her sport of the 800 meter compared to some of these other athletes. So she's somebody I'm really excited to to follow. Um, and then I guess there's also two, I was reading the other day, two trans athletes that have not, their names have not been revealed yet, but on the British team that have competed before um, as as men and I'm just excited to see what what their stories lead to as well because that's another thing I mean the U- the IOC has changed their ruling on this just this year in January that you no longer have to undergo gender uh, reassignment surgery in order to compete in um, as your sex you just have to test under a certain testosterone level which I think is certainly a lot more fair than the policy huh. used to be and, and opens the window for younger trans athletes to you know not have to worry about that as much so I think it's wonderful in the same respect I kind of compare it to 
when I was growing up, Greg Luganis was to me one of the big pioneers um, for LGBT athletes, and now for the trans community, I think that's what um, that's what these people will hopefully be. That's really interesting. So that's the measure that they're using to determine what category of competition, male or female, that a person well, is, I think is eligible for. You kind of get to determine your own. It's 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 what you identify as, but there are certain requirements of testosterone levels that you have to meet to make sure that it is still an overall fair playing field. So even if you don't go undergo the gender reassignment surgery, you still have to be um, in that level. And I don't know exactly what that level is, but um, that was the ruling that they came up with in January. That sounds like a pretty progressive approach to being inclusive of transgender athletes and to appreciate the gender in which they identify. Uh, because, you know, it certainly is. I think it was a big deal when the IOC made that decision. And um, some people were even surprised given their normally conservative approaches to a lot of these issues. So I agree with you. I think it's, it's really cool that they did that. Huh. So you mentioned one of the athletes from, from South Africa. What are some of the others that you've got your eye on? Uh, what do you think about Tom Daly? Yeah, well, everyone has their eye on Tom Daly, <laughs> um, myself included. I think he's great. You know, he's like such a celebrity in his own right over in, in the UK. But I think that, um, um, you know, he's a great story. I think he has another great chance to win. I'm obviously rooting for USA and David Badaya and our athletes too. But um, from him, just from the perspective of a LGBT athlete having a good chance, like I really hope he does really well in these games too. Um yeah, I think he's been given a great voice. He obviously made a decision to come out between his last Olympics and this one, and it was a very big deal. And I think he's going to hopefully um, talk about it a lot during his competition. Um, when we look back at well-known athletes um, being out, you know, we, we haven't seen a lot of them. I mean, Gus Kenworthy would be an example from Sochi who made a choice for a variety of reasons to not come out until after he had left the country. It actually several months after he had returned and you know, I think that's that's okay. Had he come out during the games, it would have been, I think, one of the biggest stories of those Olympics. So um, I predict that we will see, I can tell you this without revealing anybody, I know of people that are not on these lists yet that um, I think are considering coming out during the games. And I predict that we will see at least one major athlete come out during uh, during the Rio games. And I'm really excited for that. Well, that adds a little bit, bit of additional suspense and drama to the story, doesn't it? Uh, yes. I can't t- tell you much more than that, but that's my prediction. Okay. Well, that's um, a good, that's a good hook. That's yeah. A good hook yeah. For us. Okay, great. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, it was just, I, Victor Gutierrez was somebody who was really excited about it. He's a Spanish water polo player. He actually just announced yesterday that he's, he's no longer, um, going to Rio. And I haven't looked into the reasons for that. I guess maybe he, Dropped out of qualification. I'm not sure, but um, yeah. Other than that, I mean, our our basketball players. Um, I think I last I heard Megan Rapinoe is now going despite her injuries recently. Um, so so excited to see her and um, Tom's Bos- Tom Bosworth, who's a British race walker. Um, there's a ton of people that I I don't know yet. That Robbie Manson is somebody that's been pointed out to me as somebody that I should get to know. He's a rower from New Zealand. I'm just I'm really excited as I learn more about these people too to meet them and hopefully give them an outlet to tell their stories as well. Yeah, that would be really, really great. A great opportunity. Yeah, so I'm going to be um, providing coverage for a variety of outlets. I'm doing some stuff for for Bravo and Watch What Happens Live. Um, I was on a Bravo show last year and so was luckily um, invited to help them out with some stuff that they'll be doing for that show and with Andy Cohen. So that'll be really fun, kind of really color commentary and entertainment-based stuff. Um, I'm also working with... um, 
a few different LGBT outlets and blogs in order to uh, tell the stories of the LGBT athletes. I'm doing some stuff for Pride House directly. I'm doing some social media stuff for Team USA. We're doing a lot of stuff with celebrities. That's kind of become my specialty um, in my experience is connecting Hollywood with sport. I started an event called Gold Meets Golden, which you can find out about at goldmeetsgolden.com. Um, which brings together those two disciplines around Golden Globes weekend. And so what I love to do is find out in advance from these athletes who are their favorite, you know, celebrities, TV shows, who's on their training playlist, that type of thing, and get shout-outs from those celebrities to show them on the ground um, in Rio. We did that in London and Sochi. It was really fun. We had one for Gabby Douglas from the Vampire Diaries cast, and they actually invited her to be a part of the show, so that was huge. Um, We got one for Taylor Swift in Sochi for a... um, a skier named uh, Torin Yeder Wallace. He was really excited about that. We got one for the figure skater Jason Brown from Jennifer Lopez. That was pretty cool. So I have about 20 of those in my back pocket that I'm bringing down there. And I think they'll continue to air on a variety of outlets. The best way to follow me is um, via my handle. Uh, Instagram is Olympic Chaz, O-L-Y-M-P-I-C-C-H-A-Z. Um, same thing for Twitter. Um, or you can follow my, my Facebook, which is just... Um, Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-E-Y, Cullen, C-U-L-L-E-N, Walters. Um, and I'll be posting everything on there. So as more opportunities arise, I, I hope to be covering for a wide variety of people. But for me, the, the main thing is to be able to to, um, to tell these stories that aren't being told yet. Fantastic. And if you missed any of those uh, websites that Charlie gave us, we'll have them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. You can just go there and click on the links and stay in touch. Give us again the website for the Rest and Pride yeah, sure. Project. It's rest and pride. So that's R E S T I N P R I D E dot org. That's the URL. You can watch a great introductory video there. And then it takes you to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash rest and pride. And yeah, we have over a million views of our of our videos, a lot of shares, a lot of interactivity on there still. The point of this campaign was not just to make a video, it was for people to continue to upload their own experiences and videos so that we keep this conversation going, you know, even when obviously some aspects of the media are going to move on from it. And I think um, that's been pretty successful so far. So I hope I'm trying to get some Olympians to do it for us. I think that would be exciting leading into Rio, but we have had some cool celebrities and other um, um, influencer types to do these. So uh, I hope people will go on and make their own videos. We have a wide, wide diversity of people, not just LGBT people, a lot of parents that have done them, a lot of allies, um, all across the board. So I'm really, really excited about the success of that campaign and hope it will continue. Sounds like a great opportunity to host an Olympics party, watch the athletes compete, paint your face, and make a video to post. Yes, I love that idea. <laughs> all right. Well, Charlie Walters, thank you so much for giving us a briefing on the upcoming Olympics. Have a blast. Be safe. Thank you. But have thank a great you. time in Rio. And uh, we'll look forward to watching your coverage uh, on yeah. all those different channels. Hopefully, maybe we can even touch base from there. I'd be totally down with that. So let's keep in touch. Our next guest is Arthur Slepian. He is the founder and CEO of an organization called A Wider Bridge, whose mission is to build connection to Israel among LGBT Jews and non-Jews here in the U.S. through programming that focuses on bringing LGBT people into meaningful and thoughtful connection with Israel and LGBT Israelis. Arthur's here to talk about some work he's been doing with LGBT Ethiopians. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. Wonderful to speak with you as well. Uh, So let's get right to it. Tell us about Wider Bridge and its mission. 
So A Wider Bridge is about building connections between the LGBT communities of North America and Israel. And it's an organization that I founded six years ago. I knew from my own experience and travels what a really interesting and vibrant LGBT community there was in Israel. And I was struck by how little connection there was, how little people in the U.S. knew about this, and that really we weren't, I think, taking advantage of the opportunities for collaboration, for, for people working together. And I felt that both communities could be strengthened by having an opportunity to learn from each other, to share their stories with each other. Um, and so we created this platform of a wider bridge, and we lead trips to Israel. We, we bring LGBT leaders from all over North America to Israel. And during the year, we do programming where we bring Israeli LGBT activists and leaders and artists from Israel to come and talk about their work all over the U.S. And we have an online magazine at awiderbridge.org that explores this intersection of LGBT, Israel, Jewish, all across the world. How interesting. You know, and I, I think we often forget that there is a lot of intersectionality around sexual orientation. It's, a, it's an aspect of our humanity that, you know, transcends race and nationality and, and religion. And not all of those intersections and all of those identities are visible, you know, because of culture and, and the government and so forth, uh, and, and just societal norms. You've been working with a particular group of LGBT people within your organization, uh, LGBT Ethiopians. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, let me also first say that I think the first thing that you said was really interesting because I think we tend to live in fairly stratified societies. We, you know, we, we live among people that are like ourselves. And I think one of the fascinating things is that the issue of LGBT identity often transcends all of that. And so it, it's a way of, I think, bringing people together who might not ever have another reason to, to learn about each other, to know each other. Um, so if we're just as an example, I think on this, on this tour that we're doing with these leaders from, from the Israeli, Ethiopian, LGBT community, I, I think that there are many people in the U.S. who would never have the occasion to meet Ethiopians or Israeli Ethiopians, uh, but because of our commonality around the LGBT issue, uh, people are really interested in their story, and, and so connections are being made and bridges are being built that, uh, that might not otherwise ever have happened because we tend to just live apart from each other. And this, this community of, of Ethiopians in Israel is, is I think, really interesting. It's a, it's a community that has come to Israel from Ethiopia over the last two or three decades, starting in the 1980s, uh, with some big waves of immigration that were, that were supported by the government. It's, you know, it's a community that was living kind of in, somewhat in isolation in Ethiopia, maintaining their Jewish traditions for hundreds and thousands of years, but not having much connection with the rest of the Jewish world. Um, and so now there are about um, 140,000 Ethiopians in Israel, and slowly, uh, particularly among the, among the second and third generation of folks who are being born in Israel, people are realizing that some people in the community are LGBT, and they are slowly coming out and realizing that they have you know, needs for support and um, the, the challenges that they face as LGBT people in their own community are really different from the broader society. And so just a need for them to want to connect with each other and, and explore their own challenges and work to make both their, their, their own Ethiopian community a better and more welcoming place for LGBT people and also to deal with the challenges that they face as a racial minority within Israel. 
Are you seeing a migration of LGBT people from Ethiopia specifically to Israel? Is there something there that's drawing them? I mean, I've certainly read about the gay friendliness uh, that exists in Israel. Yeah, the the migration is of Ethiopian Jews. So the um, the Israeli Israeli government has put a lot of effort into um, into supporting the immigration of tens of thousands of Ethiopian Jews from Ethiopia to Israel, uh, and often with some additional support from the American Jewish community. Uh, so. Um, and there were big waves of immigration from Ethiopia in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and so it's only, it's, 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 I said, it's among the second and third generation of these folks that people are, are discovering that, yes, some of them are LGBT and they're looking for ways to, um, to lead their lives. And the, I think they also recognize that they... They would not have really, they would not have had the opportunity to explore their sexual orientation this openly if they were still back in Ethiopia. It's, right. it's, al- it's almost impossible to be out and in Ethiopian society. It's um, homosexuality is is punishable by long jail sentences in Ethiopia. Um, one of the interesting things that's happened as a result of our work is. About 18 months ago, we ran a story on our website about Kala and about Yaniv, who's one of the leaders. And it was the first time that there was a story about Kala written in English. And it went, it sort of went viral on the internet and it was picked up in Ethiopia by some LGBT people who were very much in the closet there. And so they reached out to Yaniv and invited him to come to Ethiopia to meet with them. And so he made his first trip back to Ethiopia last fall and had a chance to spend a few days meeting with these very closeted, very scared LGBT activists. And uh, I think they were, I think they were very inspired and given some hope by the fact that there were, uh, you know, there were LGBT Ethiopians, you know, fighting for equality and making, making some progress in Israel. Huh. yeah, so even so that's another it's another another example of this kind of maybe unintended bridge building, but the fact that the work that we're doing is is sort of kind of reverberating even back into Ethiopia is I think uh, a, you know a really interesting phenomenon. Um, so I mean one of the things that these folks have said to us is you know, they are they are really grateful to their parents and their grandparents for having had the courage to come to Israel. Um, this has been this has been kind of the dream of their of their community in Ethiopia for centuries to really to live among the Jewish people in Israel, and, and so they're grateful to be there. But they but they know that it's it's the job of their generation to help to make Israel a better place, both for Ethiopian people in general and also for themselves as LGBT Ethiopian Israelis. And so um, you know, they take up this this charge with. You know, a lot of commitment and, and and grace, and they know. I think they know how big the challenge is, but they are they are really eager to take it on. And so, talk about some of the challenges uh, that this group has faced in Israel as they first as they first you know immigrate into the country. Sure. So they are you know, as we experience here, they are sort of the new racial minority in Israel, kind of the. You know the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak, and um, and as in you know in, in any society, when you when you sort of inject a new 
uh, a new minority into the country, they're often the you know, the object of discrimination and bias, and um, they're also you know the the services that they get in terms of education and housing um, you know, isn't as good as it should be, and so they they experience many of the same kinds of of discrimination that African American people might uh, might experience here, um, even things like you know, racial profiling by the police, etc. Um, so so there's that there's that challenge that that they need to deal with, um, but then there's this this maybe even this deeper, more painful challenge that that they as LGBT people don't feel accepted inside their own families and their own communities, and so. Uh, it really is this, it's this sense of being a double minority, of having to fight sort of, you know, oppression and discrimination from the broader society, but also in the context of you know, not feeling quite at home and accepted within their own families and their own communities. And you mentioned uh, sort of the racial tension, and how do you see that in Israel compared to what we're struggling with here in the U.S.? Is the struggle with race as much of an issue as we're currently experiencing here? On the surface, some of it can appear to be similar. As I said, you know, they, there were some big demonstrations in Israel by the Ethiopian community last year, um, you know, around some of the same kinds of things that we're seeing here. As I said, about things like um, you know, feeling like they are being racially profiled by the police, for example. Um, but, I, but I think there are some things that really are different. Um, you know, and and it, it gets it's get back it gets back to the fact that this community came to Israel willingly, voluntarily, that they really wanted to be there. One of the things that these folks have said to us is that they understand they were not they were not brought to Israel as slaves. They came because their families had this deep yearning desire to be in Israel, and they are really grateful to be in Israel, and they love their country. But they also see that there are challenges, that it's, it's their challenge to make it a better place and to, and to fight for their equality and for their acceptance. And much like here, you know, they, they know these are things that take generations to really come about. Um, but so, they're, so they know also that some of the work that they're doing may not, may not rebound immediately to them, but hopefully to the next generations of folks that are growing up in Israel, um, you know, who are black and Ethiopian and some of whom are LGBT. Hmm. Okay. Well, you mentioned an organization called Kala. Tell us what that is and talk about the collaboration you hope to foster here with folks in the U.S. So Kala is this organization of LGBT Ethiopian Israelis. It's just started by a, a handful of folks a few years ago that has now grown into uh, uh, an organization of 70 or so people, and they, uh, they do a lot of outreach to the young people in their community. They want, they want the teenagers that are growing up in, Israel, in Ethiopian Israeli society to understand that, um, that they have choices about their sexual orientation, that they don't need to feel like they are the only ones, uh, that if, if there are, they have questions or things they want to explore, that there, that there is a place for them to go. Um, and they also are trying to work to, you know, to, to have some dialogue with, uh, you know, with the older generation of their community about who they are and about, uh, about the need for acceptance. Um, so, so they're here in the U.S. You know, with traveling with a wider bridge, I think largely because I think the first goal is for them to be visible. They want people here to know that they exist because most people don't have a set when they don't think about putting the words 
Ethiopian, Israeli, LGBT together in one sentence. Um, and so, so they're here to tell their story. They're here to, to learn from other organizations that, um, that might have similar struggles. One of the things that we've seen on this journey with them, for example, is that we've introduced them to many African-American Jews here in the U.S. And they were surprised to know that these people exist. For, they didn't realize that there, were, that there were black Jews who were not from Ethiopia or Israel. Uh, and so, so they're getting a sense that the, that, the, that the Jewish world is broader and has more diversity and texture to it than they had imagined. Um, they're, they're also seeing here in the U.S. that there are Jewish communities that are much more accepting of LGBT people than their own religious communities back home. So I think, I think that's another thing that they're gaining from their experience here. They're seeing that there are, there's more than one way to be Jewish and that there are uh, that there are rabbis here who are very accepting of LGBT people. So there's another, there's another whole layer of experience and I think of confidence that they're bringing back home with them uh, because of the, the experience that they've had here. And they've also met a lot of organizations that have said to them, you know, we started with just a handful of people a few years ago and now we are, we are larger and stronger and we're doing good work. And so I think they're seeing that there are models that they're, that, that there are groups here that they can learn from, get support from, and, and so as they're, as they're building their own organization and their own structure, that they can uh, be hopeful about a future in which, in which they too are a, a stronger and more powerful community. Fantastic. And one of the stops that you made in the U.S. was here in San Francisco uh, in April. Talk about what prompted you to come to San Francisco and, and talk about the program. Sure. Well, you know, a wider bridge was founded in San Francisco in 2010, and as we as we bring LGBT leaders from Israel around the country, uh, San Francisco is often one of the main places that we bring folks to. And on this tour, we've brought the leaders of Kala to Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and New York and Washington D.C. Um, those are those are among the the cities that uh, we do a great deal of our programming in. Um, but we felt that San Francisco was, in fact, a very important place for them to come. We met, while they were in town, they met with an organization called Bechal Lashon, which is based in San Francisco, which is an organization that promotes, the, promotes and celebrates the racial diversity of the Jewish people. Uh, and so uh, I think that was a very profound experience on both sides for, for these folks to meet each other and, and, once again, for the folks from Israel to realize that the, that the Jewish world outside of Israel is much more racially diverse than they had imagined. Um, and you know, when we brought them to San Francisco, it was Passover. It was right in the middle of the Passover holiday. And Passover is the time when we tell, this, we tell the ancient story of you know, 3,000 years ago of the Jewish exodus from slavery in Egypt. And they talked about how they celebrate Passover back in Israel, and they said, after, after we tell the story of the exodus from Egypt, the elders in our family tell, our own, tell their own story. They tell their story of the journey that they traveled from Ethiopia to Israel. It was an often a very arduous journey through the, they had to walk through the deserts of Sudan, of Sudan to get to the, the places where they would be airlifted from 
um, from Africa into Israel. Uh, and, and so each of, their, each of their elders has a very unique and powerful and interesting story. And so uh, that if, it often isn't, isn't well known in Israel, isn't even that well known among their own families. And so, mm. so they use Passover as the time not only to tell this ancient story of the, the Jewish exodus from, uh, from Egypt, but also really this very modern story of, of their community's own journey from uh, you know, into into liberation in in freedom in Israel, um, and then we think that also pairs up with the third story, which is the the ongoing story of the of the of the liberation of the LGBT community of our journey from uh, in some some sense of being enslaved both by the outer world and by our own inner world to a you know to a much greater sense of freedom and equality that we're experiencing here in the U.S. and and around the world. So we thought this 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 time of Passover being a, a celebration of freedom was a great time to to bring these folks uh, from Israel to San Francisco. It's pretty profound. You know, I just was listening to you talk about that story that happened three centuries ago and began to think about the migration that's happening from oppressed folks in Syria, and then how you talked about the Ethiopians and their journey across a desert to Israel. Uh, not a whole lot's changed, has it? I think for us, what's what's profound about the holiday of Passover is that uh, this ancient story has you know, has relevance and is mirrored by so much of the personal experience that is going on in the world today. The, the the journey from slavery to freedom is not just an ancient memory; it's something that is alive in all across the world today, and and it's important for us to understand that and to and to support the folks that are that are struggling through that journey all around us. Where can people go if they want to help support, perhaps it'd be difficult to identify specifically LGBT Ethiopians, but Ethiopians who are trying to move and get to a place of freedom. Is there some place that folks can go to help? Sure. Well, they can contact us for sure. And, and we've, been, we've been at all of our programs over the last several weeks. We've been helping people. We've been giving the information about how people can financially support Kala. Um, and and also, if there are organizations that feel like they have other kinds of resources or skills or tools that they can, they would be of value to these folks in Israel. Um, we uh, we can connect them and and help you know help make those bridges so that uh, you know, these organizations can learn and help and help each other. So so yeah. So I think probably the best way would be for them to sort of reach out to us, and they can find us at a widerbridge.org, um, but. Um, we've been we've been trying to sort of lay the groundwork um, for folks to be able to provide that help, and everywhere we've gone, I think people are so eager to do that. And, and in fact, we've already raised a fair amount of money for Kala for their for their community in the course of this journey, um, because they have they are operating with no staff; they're all volunteers with, with a very tiny budget, and and really with enormous challenges. And so, we have found people really eager to open up their hearts and their wallets and. Um, it's been it's been very gratifying to see the kind of support that uh, that these folks have engendered during the course of their travels here because their their stories have been really moving and inspirational. That's wonderful work. Tell us again the website people can go to learn more about a wider bridge. It's a widerbridge.org and it's a uh, it's an online magazine that really it's exploring the intersection of LGBT, Jewish and Israeli life and we have new content every day. Um, so we'd encourage people to, to visit it, to subscribe to our mailing list. 
we, as I said, we do our programming you know, in, in cities all across the country, so, so people should be on the lookout for um, you know, where they can uh, find us next. And, and we also invite people to consider coming on a trip to Israel with us. Terrific. And if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at OutbeatNews.com. We've been talking with Arthur Slepian, who's the executive director of A Wider Bridge. Arthur, congratulations on this fascinating work, and uh, thank you so much. It's great to know you're from the Bay Area. Once again, another way that uh, we're leading some some really amazing efforts. Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. And that brings us to the end of this Outbeat Extra. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91, KRCB FM Windsor, Santa Rosa. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us.